Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Now, today we're once again joined by friend of the show, Professor Andrew Preston of the University of Cambridge. Yesterday we were talking about um, American Crusades, about the Puritans, about the War of Independence, uh, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, and so on. And today we're moving on into the 20th century, what some people have called, of course, the American century. And about we're going to be talking about America's relationship with religion both at home and abroad. So we're going to be talking about American exceptionalism. We're going to be talking about the Cold War, Nixon, uh, Reagan, Bush, Donald Trump, of course. But first of all, let's jump right back to the First World War. All the combatants in the First World War invoke God a lot, and religion plays a huge part in mobilizing um, their home populations. That's less true in Britain and France, let's say, in the Second World War, but it's still very true of the United States. So would you say the first, I mean, this is a massive question, obviously, it's a classic question that Europeans ask about America. Is it pretty much the first half of the 20th century, would you say, where you start to see a divergence between the United States and Western Europe? And and if that's the case, or whenever the, it is, I mean, it's such a massive question, I, I, I'm embarrassed to be asking it. Why? Why do Americans stay so, <laughs> why are Americans still so much more religious, overtly religious? And much overtly. more comfortable. Yeah, overtly. Okay, fine, Tom. But you've got to, even Tom, who thinks that everybody is still a Christian, would have to agree that Americans are overtly far more religious than their British, Danish, Belgian, Dutch, French counterparts. I mean, it's a massive question, but why? It, it's very much still a part of the American political culture in a way that isn't in some other countries. So I'm not sure that it necessarily changes in in that period, although there, that is where the U.S. begins to diverge from uh, from Western Europe. But I think the, the reasons for that go deeper. If we think about American exceptionalism, why is America, you know, American exceptionalism means America is exceptional in two ways. One, that it's different from other countries. And the other way is that it's better. So it's exceptionally, it's exceptional in that it's different or it's exceptional and that it's better. And, and sometimes, especially to Americans, the sense that America is better, better, excuse me, slip of the Freudian slip of the tongue, that it's better stems from this sense of American difference, that it's somehow unique in the world. And religion is very much a part of that. It's always been. And when social scientists were asked 
uh, and who predicted social scientists who predicted that as the world becomes more modern, it will become less religious, that that's the iron law of development. Modernization sort of crushes religion before it. And they were always asked, the social scientists were always asked, well, what about the United States? Because it's the most modern society in the world or one of the most modern societies. And yet not only is religion not dying, it actually seems to be increasing so that you get to the middle of the 20th century and America's in the midst of another great awakening, an extremely religious um, 1950s. Um, and so why is that? And I think a lot of that is embedded much earlier in American political culture um, through the things like the separation of church and state, which means that um, when the state is discredited, as it is in a lot of uh, countries where there is no separation of church and state, like Russia or Mexico or France or elsewhere, when there's a revolution against the political authorities, there's then not a revolution against um, the church either. And the church isn't discredited along with politics because politicians are always discredited. There's no anti-clerical, there's almost no anti-clericalism in American history. And that is, um, I don't want to say unique because somebody always pops up with an exception, but it's very, very, very unusual. And I think it's very unusual compared to Europe. And then also what the separation of church and state did was that the church, any church couldn't rely on state support and state funding. And so they had to compete and so it gave rise to what sociologists call the marketplace of faith, which is a quintessentially American metaphor, the marketplace of faith, where there has to be constant competition and innovation. And so um, not only are the are the sort of long established churches, your Methodists, your Baptists, your Episcopalians, your Cat, a little bit true within Catholicism as well. Not only are they competing with each other for adherence, you also have new faiths spring up through the 19th and early 20th centuries as a process or as a product rather of that process of competition. So you have the invention of, of new religions throughout this whole period in Mormonism and seventh day Adventism and the nation of Islam and reform Judaism, which began in Europe, but isn't really doesn't become a big thing until the U S. Well, so Andrew, can, just to ask about, about, about the Jews, because mm. they become very influential part of, of America's cultural matrix. How, how are they, absorbed into the sense of America as a, a Christian nation? Well, they get it. It's a great question. They get absorbed through the invention of a tradition in the late 1930s, and that's the Judeo-Christian tradition. So Americans never before then talked about being Judeo-Christian ever. Um, and it's in the late 1930s because as Americans start realizing what's going on in Nazi Germany, as Franklin Roosevelt starts to try and position the U.S. against Nazi Germany, he's looking for reasons to do so. And he starts emphasizing at a time when a lot of other people aren't acknowledging what's going on, how Germans are treating Jews in Europe. This is before the war. This is before 1939. Um, and FDR is um, starting to invoke a Judeo-Christian heritage. And that's what separates religious tolerance, religious pluralism, being a people of the book, that sort of thing, is what makes us Americans as opposed to what's going on in Nazi Germany. And that's what makes the Nazis our enemy. So he's, he begins to sort of pound away at this message. Um, it really catches on in World War II. Um, and you have all sorts of wartime propaganda posters about Catholics and Protestants and Jews fighting uh, alongside each other, that it doesn't matter what faith you are in the foxhole, that you know we're, we're all part of the same cause. It just matters. Um, uh, what, all that matters is um, whether you're an American and whether you're behind the cause. And then, of course, you pivot very quickly from World War II to the Cold War, where you're fighting um, an explicitly atheistic, anti-religious enemy. And that war isn't between two nation states, but it's between two systems, two ways of life that's playing out on a global scale. And religion, but not necessarily Christianity, not even Protestantism, religion 
becomes embedded in American Cold War ideology. And that's what separates. That's what keeps us apart. And so the question, I mean, the question for a long time in American history was, you know, the, the important question is, um, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? And even it gets down to, are you a Methodist or a Baptist or an Episcopalian? And in the 20th century, the question then becomes not, are you a Protestant or a Catholic or a Jew? It's, are you religious or are you not religious? Uh, what you were saying, Andrew, uh, is is that um, Protestants and Catholics and Jews are being summoned, I guess we could call it a crusade, but certainly to an idea that their opponents are evil. And the concepts exactly. of good and evil are obviously religious ones. They're kind of bred of, let's call it Judeo-Christianity. Um, so, you know, do you answer the summons to combat evil or do you not? And we have a question here from Harold Stassen. The US also has a long history of isolationism and suspicion of involvement with the outside world. Is this tradition in direct conflict with the history of American crusades? I would guess you'd say not, because I guess you would say that there are also Christian motivations but not getting embroiled in foreign conflict. Absolutely, exactly. The only the only thing I would quibble with with the question is the word isolationism, which I don't like using because I don't think the United States was ever an isolationist country. Um, if you went back in a time machine, if you hopped in your DeLorean and went back to 1860 or 1890, and if you told, um, I don't know, somebody from Britain or Cuba or Mexico or Canada or North Africa or China or Japan which is forcibly opened up by the United States in the 1850s. Um, if you went almost anywhere in the world and you told them that Americans are isolationist and they keep to themselves and they don't engage with the rest of the world, um, <laughs> you'd be lucky if they, if they sort of, you know, shouted at you and, and said you were crazy. <laughs> you'd probably get punched because most of those people I mentioned um, at one point or another were at war with the United States or at least were inter, you know, had the United States attack them. So the U S has never been isolationist, but it has been wary of, of, political commitments to other countries, to the fates of other countries. And that changes uh, in the 20th century. But as you said, Tom, both those impulses, the title of a book that I wrote on religion, on the influence of the religious influence on American war and diplomacy is called Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith. And those those two things really speak to the two main impulses in the American Crusades, the Sword of the Spirit, the kind of warlike, aggressive um, uh, impulse, and then the Shield of Faith, the more pacifistic, reformist uh, um, impulse, but neither of them are isolationist. Let's let's go back then to the Cold War because that's obviously the point at which America. Okay, you don't like the word isolationism, but that's when um, America is committed to other countries, to the fate of other countries. It's, it's yeah, in it's, a it's, I agree in a different way than it was before. Yeah, it, it's bound to NATO. It's bound to the defense of Western Europe. Um, it, does the Cold War have a different flavor in America because of the religiosity? So think about Eisenhower's America. The kind of um, you know, in the public mind, I would say that's 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 an America of sort of you know people in small towns pledging allegiance to the flag in God we trust, very very overtly religious, both the Judeo-Christian tradition and the American civil religion. But does that mean the Cold War is different in America from other Western countries? So in Britain, obviously, the Cold War is not really that religious. I mean, there are religious people who are well. Ernest Bevan was pretty religious, but yeah, but. But by and large, the public is becoming much less overtly religious. I, right. Tom, I did say overtly. Um, and um, <laughs> Noted, noted. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of scriptural references are, are, are vanishingly rare in, in British right. political rhetoric, in Cold, in Cold War rhetoric. Even. Well, I mean, even Mrs. Thatcher. Well, even Mrs. Thatcher, you know, Tom, she she does it and it, and it seems glaring, but she doesn't do it as much as Ronald Reagan does. Mm. Um, you know, she she polices it, and I think the people around her are, are anxious about it. But it helps. It helps to cast her as a cold, 
Cold, Cold War. War yeah, yeah it? it does. It does. But she's unusual. I mean, you know, Ted Heath is not kind of quoting yeah. the Bible and saying we're committed to a crusade against communism. I mean, the thought that he or Harold Wilson would say something like that is just laughable. Um, but Andrew, so the Cold War must feel different in the United States for that reason, right? Well, I mean, you you obviously know more about British history than I do. I don't want to, I'm not an historian of other countries, but I do think just based on what I know of the Cold War, the answer is yes, that the United States is unusual, certainly compared to Western Europe. Um, and and it's not just rhetoric. It's not just a rhetorical commitment to, re- to religious values. It's not just sort of using religious imagery in order to justify policies that are really being um, conducted for other purposes. It's there at the heart of what it means to be an American. It's not the full picture. It's not the full story. And of course, not everyone was religious. But in the 1940s and 1950s into the 60s and 70s, a little less so, but especially in the 40s and 50s, um, yeah, absolutely. Being um, being religious and is 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 that is America's cause. That's very much a big part of America's cause in the Cold War. And you see it through the policies of Franklin Roosevelt in World War II, but then through Harry Truman and Eisenhower. And at one point, Truman wants at the start of the Cold War, as the Cold War is heating up, he he decides that he wants a big religious summit of all the world leaders. And he tells his aides, this is the language he used. He says, um, you know, contact the Pope and contact the Archbishop of Canterbury and contact the top Buddhist and the top. Mohammedan and the top. <laughs> and it's, these are wonderful memos because he just wants the, the, the big wigs of all the world religions to come to Washington, D.C. And his aides kind of some of his aides kind of scratch their heads um, because the fight is against atheism. The fight is against communism um, because they don't believe in freedom of conscience. They don't believe in freedom of religion. And if they can't believe in conscience or, or freedom of religion, then they can't believe in democracy. And that makes them aggressive. And and then it takes this is wonderful story where. He asks his ambassador to Turkey to ask the Turkish government who the top Muslim is. And, and what answers the, because they, and, well, he says, well, he says, as you'd expect, he says, well, we don't really have a, a, a top Muslim anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, but actually, uh, Mr. Ambassador, this is the Turkish diplomat saying this to the American ambassador. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, doesn't your country um, have enshrined a constitutional separation of church and state? Uh, and, <laughs> And yet you're making it religion the basis of your policy. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And we'll come back with your question, Tom. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back. Now, Tom, you were poised. Uh, we've, we've talked about America as a Protestant nation, and we've talked about how Catholics and Jews kind of get woven into it. But does the Cold War enhance that sense that Catholics and Jews are allies of protestantism because the you know you said get the pope on the phone john paul ii in particular i mean he he's seen yeah. by reagan by thatcher as a key ally and the other thing of course that happens after the second world war and through the cold war is the role that's played by israel and america's alliance with israel and the sense that evangelicals in america have that somehow the establishment of israel is a fulfillment of god's plan um and do those two you know, the Catholic and, and and the Jewish dimensions of Cold War policy have a kind of, do they have blowback on, on domestic uh, religious interfaith relations? Yeah, there's a constant interplay. I mean, Truman is, of course, also the president who recognizes the state of Israel. Um, and he does so against the advice of a lot of his uh, diplomats because it's going to enrage the Arab world. Um, and he, he quotes, I forget what you'll probably know, Tom, um, but he quotes the, he says, he turns to his aides and he says, I am Cyrus, um, who freed the Jews. 
And his aides have no idea what he's talking about, his diplomats. Because throughout this process, the American diplomatic corps is actually not very religious. It's very professionalized. It's very secular. Um, they have no idea what he's talking about. But Truman is very proud to be the first, the first leader to recognize the state of Israel. So they do come in. And that's also part of the Cold War. That's part of sort of not just mm-hmm. a commitment to the freedom of the Jews, but also to um, promoting religion against the forces of irreligion. Because the forces of irreligion are also the forces of aggression, They're the forces of tyranny. Um, and that's how it all comes uh, comes to be tied up in American um, uh, ide- Cold War ideology. When we get to the end of the Cold War, so obviously Reagan is president. Now, Reagan is obviously an, an absolutely, he's so elusive, he's so ambiguous, he's fascinating. He's, he's he, he appears to be incredibly irreligious with his store of kind of Hollywood dirty stories <laughs> and, you know, his, his divorced and all this stuff. But... And and he's also hard to pin down in religious terms, isn't he? Because he believes oh, he's in, extremely hard. He believes in ghosts and astrology and yeah. all kinds of wacky stuff. But he believes in evil. He believes in God too, and he believes in Jesus. He believes in it all. <laughs> <laughs> but the evangelical movement kind of adopt Reagan, or they adopt each other at the end they of the nineteen seventies. They adopt each other. Um, they adopt each other. And from that point, do you think there is? I mean, is it fair to say there is a tonal shift from the nineteen eighties onwards that leads to? The rhetoric of, of George W. Bush, or am I wrong in seeing that as any kind of break? Because obviously Carter had previously been very religious. Um, oh yeah, I mean Nixon was a Quaker. He didn't invoke God an enormous amount. I wouldn't have said Nixon. Well, he's the Nixon is the first president to start signing off his speeches. God bless America. Is he? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was that was no, that was purely for political reasons. I was about I to say. I mean, nobody does sincerity better than <laughs> Richard Nixon. <laughs> although, although he does, you know this story, Don, where he does yeah. ask during Watergate, he asks Kissinger to get on his knees and pray with him. Yeah, we did. We covered that in our Watergate podcast. Such a terrible moment, yeah. isn't it? Because because he says to he he prays with Kissinger and then he says, um, "Henry, whatever you do, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't rush it out. Yeah. Gets on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but is Reagan a break?" Um, in bringing evangelical language into politics, or is it all? Is, is it in no, presidential politics? Break. He just revives it. He, okay. he, 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 he's not a break. He revives it, and he revives it in a very, in a way that freaks a lot of people up, but in a way that's also very politically skillful. You know, he, of course, I mean, he describes the Soviet Union as an evil empire after a period of detente. Yeah. and it, and it's, it's very scary to a lot of people that he does that, including to a lot of his own aides. Um, but people forget that he gave that speech to the annual convention of the National Association of Evangelicals, the most powerful religious organization in the United States, not just religiously powerful, but especially politically powerful. And he chooses that forum to call the Soviet Union an evil empire after 15 years of detente. Um, and religion is very much that kind of religious, that sort of sword of the spirit is very much at the heart of the Reagan doctrine and Reagan's anti-communism. But interestingly also is the shield of faith. So when Reagan makes his pivot in 1984 away from that cold warrior rhetoric and, and looks to um, looks for a way out of the cold war, looks to try and end the cold war. And he finds a partner in Mikhail Gorbachev and they begin to negotiate um, he also, in a much more subtle way, uses religion as a way to, as both method, but also objective in trying to find a way out of the Cold War. So in terms of method, he, um, it was a, I won't, I won't go into all the details, but in the late seventies, there was a family of Pentecostals, another invented American religion in the early 20th century. Pentecostalism was born in Los Angeles. Um, and so there's a group of Pentecostals in Siberia. They were called the, the, the Siberian seven and they, 
in the name of religious liberty, they went to the U.S. embassy in Moscow, traveled all the way to Moscow, went to the embassy and asked, claimed political asylum. And they lived in the basement of the U.S. embassy for five years or so, five or six years. And the Soviets wouldn't let them leave. And of course, the Americans wouldn't let them out of the embassy because who knows what would happen to them. And it became a huge issue, a really big deal um, politically. And Reagan talked about it a lot in his more aggressive phase as an evidence. This is why they're evil and they're denying people the freedom of conscience and democracy and religion and all that sort of thing. But in 1983, four, when he's looking for a way out, he approaches the Soviets and he says, um, he says, we can do this quietly. And if you if you let them leave the country um, and eventually settle in the United States, I won't make a big deal politically about it. Um, and he does that. And he's good to his word. And that's the first confidence building measure that the Americans and the Soviets do that paves the way for detente. And later on, when he meets Gorbachev and they're flying around in helicopters and summits in Reykjavik and Vienna and places like that, Reagan keeps lecturing to him. And Gorbachev later says, why on earth is he telling me this? Because I really don't care. But Reagan <laughs> keeps lecturing to him. He says he keeps lecturing to him about the importance of religious freedom. And the importance of individual choice over religion, which is a very Protestant notion. Um, yeah. And and he says this is what you and this and if you if you just recognize this and embrace it, then it will lead to better things. So that's a kind of argument for liberal democracy, American civil religion, all that kind right. of thing. Right. Um, when when the Cold War ends, um, the, the famous uh, slogan that sums it up uh, is "The End of History," written by Francis Fukuyama, who yeah. is the son of a Protestant minister. I actually didn't know that. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, so Fukuyama is absolutely from this kind of Protestant. Interesting. Uh, un universal understanding of, of, you know, and essentially it seems to me that his vision of the end of history is a kind of secularized vision of the end times. It's, uh, you know, the universal values of liberal mm. democracy have spread. So, uh, and America then comes, that's what America comes to cast itself as the defender of. So in a sense, you could say that since the Cold War, to that degree, America has remained true to that idea of itself as a defender of what is good, as opposed Absolutely. to what is evil. And yeah. I suppose that, um, you know, if you're talking about Judeo-Christian civilization, notoriously in the, <laughs> with 9-11 with, uh, and its aftermath, that then starts to rub up against um, the other great religion of the book, which is Islam. And how, in going into the 21st century, how do you see that as a, a kind of a problem for America's sense of itself as a crusader? In fact, I mean, absolutely on that question, we have from Captain Insano, do you think George Bush's crusade comment around the war on terror was a slip of the tongue that reflected existing thoughts and attitudes to US foreign policy? To that last question, absolutely. Yes, I think it was a, I think it was a genuine slip of the tongue. I think he had no clue about the historical context and resonance that that would have in other parts of the world. But I think the use of the word absolutely well, I'm just agreeing with the question. Yes, it yeah. absolutely reflected the fact the that he reaches mindset. for that word. He reaches for that. He, well, he doesn't even reach for it. It's just there. Yeah. He just the fact he, that it's accidentally there because is yeah, he steeped exactly. in, in that kind of yeah in that sense. I don't think it's deliberate. I wouldn't say it's no, exactly. At all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what about so George W. Bush? Obviously, he's even he's an evangelical. He's comfortable with the language of mm. um, of Protestant evangelicalism, and that's what he reaches for after nine eleven. And so you have that sort of tendency in American foreign policy, which is there throughout the early 21st century. And then you have also Republican, very different, the America first kind of tendency of, of epitomized by Donald Trump. And is the Trump sort of tendency, do you think that is, I mean, that seems so different from so much of what we've been talking about, because is there any religious component to that at all? He's compared to Cyrus, isn't he? 
Mm, he is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of it. But just on the before that, to George W. Bush, there's another. Yes, he, he has the evangelical sort of crusading rhetoric um, and he has. And then the other strands, I forget what they were, but you mentioned some other strands. But then there's also he also explicitly invokes that that tradition of pluralism, of religious pluralism that goes back to Franklin Roosevelt and to Harry Truman and others um, that is supposedly pluralistic, but has at its heart a Protestant core Protestant assumptions that Americans don't realize yeah, that are Protestant absolutely, assumptions. Absolutely. And he says, you know, what is he, he says, this isn't non, Al Qaeda does not represent true Islam. They're not right. true Muslims. Um, and he also says that um, the way forward here is through religious tolerance and religious pluralism. Um, and it's a message that Obama continues his, his, his most famous foreign policy speech, the address in Cairo in June of 2009. He says the Middle East is is racked by conflict and it sucks in great power competition and war begets war. How, what's the way out of this? Um, and he says uh, religious tolerance, religious pluralism, because without that, you can't have peace. And without peace, you can't have stability and democracy. And if you basically you have to have religious tolerance and religious pluralism, pluralism, which is something we've had for a long time in the American tradition. So it's not just George W. Bush right. who's saying that sort of thing. But what about Trump? Is Trump different? Um, uh, no, I mean, as Tom said, he's, you know, he, so he's, he's, he's got the one, he's very, very pro-Israel and he's part, he's in large part, he's pro-Israel because, um, that's, that's a big part of his political base. Uh, white evangelicals vote for Trump in much greater numbers and greater and a greater proportion of their numbers than they did even for George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. Um, Trump himself is very, very irreligious, but as you said, Dom, you don't have to be personally religious to, to have support from from the religious yeah. right or any religious community. Um, so he's not religious, but he says all the right things. He does all the right things. And I think he says um, that uh, talking about the Bible, that it's even better than the art of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so that's right. you know, he's obviously never read it. Two, well, two books he's never read because he didn't even yeah, write art, never of the read deal. That the art of the deal. There's that when he marches over to the church across from the white house during the yeah. black lives matter protests, and he's holding up a Bible in front of the, in front of the church, he holds it upside down for, yeah. Yeah. For a while. Yeah, he's not a man of faith, but he was close to Reverend Norman Vincent Peale in the 1950s, who I believe married, presided over his first marriage. And Peale was the um, the author of, um, you know, those self-help books from the 1950s. Yeah. Um, uh, what are they called? Jesus but, Wants You, you know, to Be Rich sellers. kind of books. No, but but more but secular, religious, but secularized in a way. Um, the Power of Positive Thinking. Yeah. That's Norman Vincent Peale. And all, all, all of those books and that Trump very much believed in those two. So it's not really religious, but it's to go back to a question, Tom, or a statement Tom made towards the beginning of the podcast. If, if it suffuses everything, when does it stop becoming religious? It never does. It never does. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect note on which to end. Just encouraging Tom, which is not good to to hear. No, but, Andrew, um, very wise, very wise. It's a brilliant book, there. by the way, um, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith. And it won a prize, didn't it, in your native Canada? Top top book of the year. Best Canadian book ever written. Isn't that, wasn't that the prize? Something like that. I think you and Margaret Atwood are the, uh, are the two, top, two top Canadians. <laughs> Robertson Davies. Yeah. The three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, thank you Thanks to all of me. you uh, for listening. And we will see you next time on The Rest is History. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
Hi, Resters History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?